Alex, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, it's real good to be here tonight. Good to be in AA. Good to see all of you. And uh, I've been told that I must quit by 9.30. <laughs> and that's the only lie I'm going to tell you tonight. Uh, I do enjoy coming to this group. This will be my second trip. And uh, it's been quite a while since I was here. I appreciate the invitation. Always good to be with Jerry and some of my friends that I've known for many, many years. Good to make new friends. I made the mistake of leaving home tonight without putting a handkerchief in my pocket. And I found out about it when I got here and I started moving some chairs over this way. And when I'm moving chairs, my nose wanted to start running. And I reached back and I didn't have my handkerchief. But my good buddy came to the rescue. He went and bought a whole pack. <laughs> and I'm grateful. I'm going to use at least one of them tonight. I can't help it when I get nervous and upset. I, I drool a little bit. It runs out of the corner of my mouth. My wife says that's not drooling, that's slobbering. But <laughs> well, whatever she wants to call it is all right with me. It don't matter. She ain't right no way. <laughs> and I know that. But it, it's good to be here. I'm a little bit nervous. And I'm going to tell a little funny story. It's clean. Don't worry about it. It's clean. But it sort of helps me get over the nervousness a little bit. In Sanford, there's a street that doesn't have driveways going up to the house. They park on the street all the time, up next to the curb. And this drunk was walking up that sidewalk one morning, and he was humming and stumbling along. And up the street, there was a, a Mayflower van sitting up next to the curb. And they were moving furniture out of a house up here, coming down the walkway in the yard, then coming down the walkway out where the uh, Mayflower van was. And they were moving that furniture, putting it in the truck. And one guy was coming down, had a grandfather's clock on He was walking along. And when he got down on the sidewalk at the street there, that drunk run into him, knocked the poor man down. And the man was sitting over next to the curb. The clock was laying between him and the drunk. Glass was on the street. Springs was flying out of the clock. And that man looked at that drunk, and he said, you're the drunkest SOB I have ever seen. Why don't you watch where you're going? And the drunk said, you're the stupidest son of a gun I ever seen. Why don't you wear a wristwatch like everybody else? <laughs> That's clean. That's not the kind I used to tell. But it is good to be here. And I haven't been speaking as much because of the illness and I hadn't been invited and I had been allowed to go into congested places by my doctor. I have a heart condition and COPD and can't hear and can't remember. Getting old and senile and can't remember stuff and it bothers me. So I hadn't been traveling as much as I normally do. But it's picking up a little bit now that they lifted the restrictions somewhat and it is good to be getting out again i know i've been an alcoholic since i was about 20 years old between the ages of 17 and 20 i was sipping a little beer with some guys who rode around with me i had a car they didn't and i had become popular when i was 17 when I got that car and had a few dollars in my pocket on the weekend, and those guys didn't have any money, didn't have an automobile, and that automatically made me popular. 
I hadn't been that way in my lifetime until then. And they drank that beer and drank one, two, or three, and act like they drank a barrel. Later on, I learned they drank about a barrel and I thought they had one, two, or three. I wanted to, but they couldn't do it. But I didn't like beer. I didn't like the taste of it. It made me feel nauseous. And I poured out a lot of good beer during this first three years. I didn't want them to know I was drinking so little. I wanted to be macho like they were. And we'd be at a drag race or a football game or a ball game or down at the lake. And they weren't looking, I'd pull my beer out. Didn't like it. That all changed. 1953, some of you weren't even born at that time. <laughs> the Korean War was in progress. I was 19 years old and I was drafted. Uncle Sam said, come, and I went. Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And, uh, Stayed there for basic training, and then was transferred to Fort Lee, Virginia. And in November of that year, I went from Fort Lee home to Roxburgh, North Carolina, where I was born and raised on a weekend pass. And that weekend pass, a couple of buddies found out I was there, and they came by and picked me up and said, let's go to the dance tonight. And I had been to that dance uh, a couple of times before, but uh, I had never danced. And it never felt like dancing. And I went with those guys after that dance that night. And I remember I had on a real tight-fitting Army OD color uniform. They looked real good in those days. And... Uh, I'm standing out of heater in that garage-type building where the country and western music was playing. And I got that uniform on, the little pins on the shoulders to make it look better. All those medals I'd earned that afternoon at the PX. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a flat-top haircut about like it is tonight, except it was a lot thicker and a different color. My shoes were shined, and, and I was real neat. And I'm standing at that heater doing what I always did out in a public convenience place. I was watching other people laugh, talk, have a good time, share with each other, and I couldn't do that. I felt irritable, ill at ease, inadequate, inferior, uneducated, backward, tall, skinny, I had a real bad impression about myself. And uh, I'm standing at that heater that night, and a lady come in the door after she had purchased a ticket at the window and began walking across that floor toward me at that heater. And I mean, when she was walking across that floor, I was really attracted. Everything was just bouncing in unison. And she came over to that heat and started talking to me. And I was really embarrassed. I had never talked to anybody that had a reputation like she had. I had heard things about her in the pool rooms and service stations that would curl your hair. And I'm standing there, and I'm thinking about what my preacher brother had said, that if I ever got involved with something like that, or drank white whiskey, I'd go to hell. And I had never wanted to go to hell. Still don't. But anyway, she started talking to me, and I was embarrassed. And it wasn't long before I was relieved when she asked me to usher her out to the car. Now, I'm right out of basic training. I got my sharpshooter's medal on, and maybe it's my responsibility to usher her out to her car. There might be some wolves in the parking lot. <laughs> we went out to that car that night, and she started that old Chevrolet up, and she started the radio up. She started the heater up. And when she come back up in the seat after reaching over there and getting that heater going, she's trying to start me up. And I was surprised. 
And I had never had anyone talking to me like she was talking to me. And it, I, I just didn't know what to do. And it wasn't long before she saw that I was restless and backward and country and not responding. And she reached on the seat and got that pint of white moonshine whiskey. Got two cups out of the glove compartment and poured out me a cup of whiskey. And I tell you, when I got in that car that night, I had all those inferiority feelings and being backward in country. I hadn't had the opportunity to be with a woman like this was about to be that night. My experience with women at that time was about like my having been in the army. I had fired off a few good rounds, but I'd never been in combat. <laughs> and, and that night, she led me on for a while now, and uh, we had two or three more cups of whiskey. And I tell you, something slowly happened to me. I didn't have a spiritual awakening that I know about today, but something really evolved into my life that I had never had before. Every feeling I had of being inferior, uneducated, backwards country, all of those vanished. And suddenly I realized that I was six foot eight, 268, tall, dark, handsome, educated, I was going to lay some on her she'd never experienced in all her life. And I can't tell you everything that happened that night, but on Sunday morning about 2.30, I'm back home in the bed, and I'm ready to go to sleep, but I don't want to go to sleep. I just want to lay there. I don't want to sleep ever. I just want to lay there and relive Saturday night over and over again. I lay down knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that I had found this solution to my problem that Saturday night. I had found that magic ingredient that enabled me to feel, act, talk, and associate with people like those other people were associating and laughing and dancing. And after getting a little bit aggressive, she invited me to go in and dance. And that old fiddling guitar and band just struck up a tune she grabbed me by the hand and we went around that floor about twice and I could dose it dough, promenade, lemonade, whatever it was they was doing. I could do it. They did the bunny hop. And I I just fell right into that just naturally. I, I got so good at it that they asked me and her to leave. And we did. And I, I lay in that bed that morning and know that mom and dad and my preacher brother had lied to me, saying that booze was something to send me to hell. And I knew that they were wrong. I had been in heaven on Saturday night. I had become determined that come the next weekend, I'm going to be buying me some whiskey. I'm not going to depend on somebody else to furnish it. And when I left Fort Lee the next weekend, going on Pasadena, I bought my first pint of whiskey. And before the weekend was over, I realized that it wasn't big enough. Had to get some more. And that drinking on Friday night, Saturday night, became a pattern. And it continued to be a pattern for several months. And then at Fort Lee, I was invited to go with some guys up to Richmond, Virginia. And up there, I was quickly enticed to join in with them in drinking. And I discovered that whiskey would do the same thing for me on Tuesday night or Wednesday night that it did on Friday night or Saturday night. And I began using it then. So to see that the habit of drinking over a period of time changed from being just a habit, it evolved into a situation whereby I was wanting to drink. I was feeling it necessary to drink. And it wasn't too long before I was beginning to have some problems. 
I got out of the Army the first two years with honorable discharge, went back home, went to work in the mill, re-enlisted in the National Guard, whereby I would be able to maintain my PFC rank in the event I chose to go back into service. I also enlisted uh, in the high school. I went into the ninth grade at 22 years old. And uh, Coach Cushwall was the teacher. He was also the football coach. Anyway, I was in that ninth grade, and I can tell you, I didn't get the highest grades in there, but I was the highest a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got caught just before Christmas that year. I had bought a Pontiac convertible in Fort Jackson to get a Fort Jackson license, a South Carolina license. They had taken my license in North Carolina just because I was driving drunk. <laughs> and I didn't lose them. I knew where they were. They were in Raleigh. <laughs> but I got the South Carolina license, and then I was caught in Roxborough for, for drunken driving and driving without license. I didn't even show them a South Carolina license. But anyway, when I lost this license, I didn't go back to school. So I dropped out again in the ninth grade. I had gotten out in May of 55. In October of 56, I decided it was time for me to go back into the Army. I had been promoted to corporal in the National Guard, and I had some real good reasons for leaving town. I owed mom and dad money. I owed some lawyers money. I owed, his, owed some court fines. And I had been caught again for driving after the license revoked and under the influence. And I was to be tried on those charges. The prosecuting attorney said, he told my father, if he goes back on active duty, we will not process those charges. I felt like that was a good reason to go back into the Army. I wasn't patriotic at all under those circumstances. But I also had another good reason for going back in. My girlfriend told me that we should get married. And I told her I was in no condition to get married. And she said, it's the condition I'm in, we better get married. She told my mama about it, and mama began to jump on me. She wanted a daughter-in-law, and she wanted a grandchild, and she was going to get both. And she loaned me $100 to get a ring, to get my brother-in-law and sister to drive me to South Carolina with Jane, and we got married. And that was in October 6th of 1956. I was reassigned to Fort Lee, Virginia again. And I went home in January of that year. We had furnished an apartment. My father had loaned me money to furnish a five-room apartment. I went home that weekend and January of 56. Got drunk at home that weekend on white liquor. And that's Sunday night when it was time to leave. I walked out of that apartment crying, went down to the road, put my thumb up. I'm hitchhiking back to Fort Lee, Virginia. A Mack truck stopped to pick me up. And he asked me when I crawled up in the cab of that truck, soldier, why are you crying? Couldn't tell him I was walking out on a little girl that I love dearly. She's 13 months old. Walking out on a wife that I didn't love and had never loved. I don't know what time we got to Fort Lee, Virginia, but he put me out and I walked the rest of the way into the camp. I began having problems at Fort Lee then. And it wasn't too long before the company commander was sending me to talk to a psychiatrist and to a preacher. The chaplain talked with me for several weeks 
periodically many times, and it didn't do any good. The little psychiatrist that he sent me to didn't do me any good. He'd smoked that pipe. It was about as big around almost as a baseball, about the size of a, it looked like a commode, and it almost, it almost smelled like one. But he smoked that thing and talked to me about my drink, and it didn't do any good. Well, long before in Richmond, Virginia, I had been given a, a job at the, on post working with special services to be a lifeguard for the NCO club swimming pool. And I was the skinniest lifeguard lifeguard I'd ever seen. But anyway, I made the, made the grade. Anyway, that lifeguard job gave me a little extra money. And with that extra money, I managed to build another old automobile. And with that old automobile, I managed to get a charge of hit and run and driving under the influence, resisting arrest and striking a police officer. All those charges came about in Richmond. And I was to be tried for them at the Superior Court level. And before I could be tried on them, I was called again in Colonial Heights on driving charges. The company commander knew that I was going to jail if I was convicted on any of those charges. The prosecuting attorney had called him and told him so. Well, he told the attorney that he needed to take action first. And 12 officers looked at my record for the past year, year and a half, and that record said drunk and so-and-so, drunk and so-and-so, drunk and so-and-so. And they declared that I had become alcoholically unfit for military service. You see, in Korea, I had not drank. And after five and a half months, after being soldier of the month for five consecutive months and battalion soldier of the month for three, I had been promoted from corporal to sergeant. And I had also lost that after about 90 days. I went back to being a corporal again. And now at Fort Lee, Virginia, I didn't look like that guy that had been soldier of the month and had earned his sergeant stripes. I didn't look that way at all. I was so ashamed of myself. I'd walk through the day room, the way I was living, the way I looked, the way I acted, the way I performed my duties, and I couldn't hold my head up. And look at those guys. I was so ashamed of the way I was living and didn't know what to do about it. I was drinking to live and living to drink. Anyway, they declared I was alcoholically unfit and booted me out, and I went to jail and served a 90-day jail sentence. Got out, lived up in Virginia for a year, uh, what they call nowadays a meaningful relationship. Back in those days, they call it shacking up. <laughs> but anyway, it was the same difference. And I shacked up there for a year, and Mom and Dad found out where I was. I had not communicated with them whatsoever during that year. No phone calls, no letters, nothing. Anyway, I don't know how they found out, but they found out where I was. And they wrote me a letter and told me to come home. And one day when Ruth went to work at the cigarette factory, I put on the cleanest, dirty clothes that I had out of the clothes hamper, and I went down to the highway. I'm going back to Roxborough. And I went back to Roxborough, moved in with Mom and Dad, and they said, no drinking. You start drinking. You can't stay here. Five and a half months I lived with them, working in the mill. My cousin gave me a job again. During that five and a half months, they had introduced me to a lady that was eight years older than I. And after five and a half months of no drinking, going with her to church, 
staying in their house quite a bit, taking care of some things for a good Baptist Sunday school lady needs taking care of. And evidently she liked the way I raked the yard and so forth and cut the grass and a few other little activities. And she asked me to marry her. We did get married. And for the next year, she thoroughly regretted that. Many, many times, after three weeks of no drinking, living with her, I began drinking again. And it was worse than it had ever been. And she'd cry and pray and talk to her people and talk to her pastor and talk to my parents and begged me and made all kinds of promises if I would just quit. And I tried many times during the summer and fall of 52, I couldn't quit. In January of 62, I started drinking on a Friday afternoon. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday morning at five o'clock. She was shaking me vigorously trying to wake me up to see if I was going to work. I was doing carpenter work at the time. She asked me, was I going to work? And I said, yes. And when I turned to get off the bed that morning, I went to the right and my elbow hit something on the pillow. And I didn't know what it was. It made a loud clanging noise. I raised the pillow up and it was two pints of white moonshine whiskey. And I sat there on the side of that bed that Monday morning and began drinking that whiskey with my underwear on and smoking a cigarette. When she came back in the door to see why I had not responded to the aroma of bacon eggs in the kitchen. When she saw what I was doing, she walked up in front of me and put her hands on her hips and was stooping over looking me straight in the face. And she began telling me some things that she had told me many times during the past year. And this time I knew she was speaking with more authority than ever. That I was a sorry, no good, low down drunk. This is all I'd ever be. No good to her, to my daughter, to my employer, to the community. No good to anybody. I was nothing but a drunk and that's all I'd ever be. And she said, when I get home from work, I want you out of my house, out of my heart, out of my life forever. We are absolutely finished this time. And I knew she meant it too, and she went on to work that morning. And I don't recall leaving home that morning, going to town. I learned later that I did walk down to the Bill Bootleg Joint nearby. They told me I called a taxi and went to town. And I don't remember being in town that day. Sometime later, I'm in a courtroom. The lawyer sitting down beside of me, and the judge asked the sheriff to present what evidence he had about the case. And the sheriff stood up, and he said that he was in his office that Monday afternoon at 4 o'clock. He looked out on the street, and he saw me drunk. And he was going to come out and arrest me. But the telephone rang across the room and he went over to get the phone. His secretary was not working that day. He answered the phone and he came back to see where I was. And he didn't see me. It was an extremely cold uh, afternoon. And he said he forgot about it. And I've wished a million times that he had arrested me that Monday afternoon because sometime in the next couple of hours was when offenses were committed that brought about my arrest again. And that was why I was in court. The judge listened to what the sheriff said. And then he said, young man, you can stand. And the lawyer had to help me to my feet because I knew what was coming. He said, for the offenses committed, I hereby sentence you to the North Carolina Department of Corrections for a period of 40 years and natural life at the expiration of that 40. So that meant I was going to have to stay at least 20 years in prison.
at least 20. And I was taken into the prison on February 13, 1963. I think I said 62 earlier, but it was 63 that I went into prison. And that Wednesday afternoon, I'm standing in the back hall of Central Prison as they are in the process of shaking me down and searching me when the door on my right hand side slammed shut. I never heard anything so forlorn sounding as the way that door sounded. I had never been in prison before. I'd been in jail. I'd served that 90 day jail sentence. But it, I should have been real frightened, but I wasn't frightened at all. I was absolutely relieved to know that I was exactly where I belong if things had happened the way they said they did. I was where I belong. And it was a relief to know that I would not have to face up to that family or anyone else that I'd harmed. And I began serving that time. Three weeks later, I'm working as a clerk in the classification section because I was a good typist. And uh, those guys took me into their confidence and felt that I would be an okay guy. And they told me about how some outside issues were being smuggled into the prison. And that with a little money, I could get those issues. And it would help me to sleep at night. And I wanted something that would help me sleep at night because I'd lay there and I couldn't sleep and I'd have nightmares. And I'd listen to the noise and the confusion and the hatred and the bitterness that was going on all around me. I couldn't sleep. And I began to get involved in those outside issues. And also there was alcohol being made out of rotten apples and banana peelings and potato peelings and uh, old grapes and such things as that. And it don't taste very well, but it'll do the job. <laughs> anyway, I began taking that stuff. That was around February or March. In June of that year, I was fired from that job that I had in the classification section. But you can believe they did not send me home. <laughs> I, I was given a job then working in the print shop learning to run an offset press and I became very good at that and I worked on it for the next two or three years and uh, in June of that year I also had a couple of other things that happened to me a guy that I associated with on the yard quite a bit, invited me to go with him to a crazy meeting they had. A crazy meeting they had called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he'd go in that meeting and he'd hear them people talk about their experience, strength, and hope. And he'd see those people come in and hug the inmates and say, I love you. And I knew it was love already there. Two of those jokers sat on the back row and hold hands every meeting night. And I didn't want no part of that. One other thing happened in June that I'll never forget. Is that a guy was waiting for wife number two when she got home from work one Monday morning. He was in the bedroom waiting on her. And she was kidnapped assaulted and robbed. And he was apprehended shortly and sentenced and placed in central prison. And I'm in central prison going to that AA meeting once a week. All they did was talk about being drunk and I think subconsciously what they were saying that if I ever get that bad, I'll know what to do about it, and I'll go to AA. It must have crossed my mind. But anyway, in February of that year, after having been in AA for about eight and a half months, I was in, my, in the library writing a letter to my mother. She was in her 70s. 
And a guy came in and put something on the table in front of me, and I immediately swallowed it and drank some buck. And then I went out behind the chapel in about 20 minutes and dug into the ground and got some round plastic dollars that was hid there, my stash. And I went to the bootleg and I got enough stuff and went to my cell block and proceeded to get drunk. And that Sunday night, I'll never forget. That Sunday night, I came to sometime after eight o'clock. I'm way up on the fourth floor, 40 feet from up there, the catwalk down to the concrete floor below. And I'm thinking about what I had been thinking about for several weeks. Suicide is the answer to my problem. I'll be out of this misery. I'll be out of this noise. I'll be out of this hatred, this bitterness, this inability to get drunk and stay drunk for as long as I want to stay drunk because I don't have the money and I get locked up every time without it. So I couldn't get sober and I couldn't get as drunk and stay drunk the way I wanted to stay drunk. And that's a heck of a position to be in. Some of you probably know about it. Anyway, I made up my mind that tonight I'll have enough stuff that I can take and it will give me nerve enough to go over that railing head first. A guy had already done that sometime earlier and he was dead on the floor when the guards got to him. And but for the grace of God, that would have been me that night. I stood at that door, knowing that it would slide open at nine o'clock like it did every night. I stood at that door and I remember crying and praying and wondering what my mother would think. But anyway, you can call it whatever you choose to call it. You can call it passing out, blacking out, or what have you. But I came to sometime later. And I'm on my knees in front of that commode. My head is down in the commode and I'm vomiting and crying and praying. And I pass out again. I came to later and crawled into my bed. The next morning when I was a cell block, the guys on my right hand side and left hand side said, what was going on in there last night? I had been in my cell block alone because my cellmate had been in the hospital for a week with a virus. I had been in there alone. And they said, last night you cried out. Loud enough for everybody on this road to hear you. You said, God, if you help me get back to AA, I'll try. That was February 16th, 1964. I haven't had a drink since. I'm grateful for that because that next meeting night I went to, I sat down to the left-hand side of the podium. <clears throat> When I left the meeting that night, I picked up some pamphlets and carried them back to my cell block. And for the next two weeks, I began reading those pamphlets at night rather than watching television. Some two weeks later, I went to the meeting and Tom Ivester was there. Some of you know him. Some of you have known him for years. Some of you have worked with him just as I have. But he was there. And I was talking with him after the meeting. And he very quickly reached over onto the literature table, got a copy of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the second edition. Second edition worked real well, see. <laughs> he handed that book to me and told me what I needed to do with it. And I took that book to my cell block and began to read it. And I was absolutely surprised and came to the conclusion that this was a way of life that I could find in prison in the event I choose to do what this book tells me to do. 
and I began to do that. It was only speaker meetings in that in that group, and, and nobody seemed to be real interested in sobriety. Uh, no panel meetings. Nobody talking about traditions. Nobody talking about the slogans. Nobody talking about serenity prayer. It's just a drunk log over and over and over again. <laughs> and I got active in the group more long before I was secretary and because I could type. And that's why I was given the job and I was typing up rosters for the group that I'd have to give to the captain that was one of the inside sponsors like Tom Ivester was. And I did lit uh, correspondence for Tom and uh, and for the group. And I serve on that. I'd give up my time on Saturday morning rather than go to the movies uh, on Saturday that was always free in the auditorium. I'd give up my time because they'd give me access to a typewriter that I could put into the library and write those letters and do those rosters on Saturday morning because I was working in the print shop uh, during the week. And in May of 1956, Tom decided he was going to open another office up over in Central Prison. And he put out a notice that he was going to be picking a guy to serve as clerk. I had already been working on the publication, the story, a 32-page, uh, six-by-nine publication that we've got copies of it in the archives now at Central Prison and in the area service structure. And uh, I began to work on that book as a staff artist and while in the print shop would print the covers for that book and draw those covers. And I wrote a lot of articles to go in those books. And when Tom was talking about a clerk in that, they put my name up along with about seven other people. And I was chosen to be the clerk for Tom Ivester in Central Prison in that office. And I was taken out of the print shop and given white clothes to wear now and went to work for Tom as his clerk. And Tom was also at that time the director of the alcoholism drug program for inmates out at the honor grade unit, which is called the Correctional Center for Alcoholics. This is where they sentence public drunkenness offenders to 30 days to six months for public drunkenness. And this was in May of that year that the riot came up. And uh, I was working as a clerk then uh, in the hospital. Uh, no, not no, I wasn't working in there before the riot. It was after the riot because the riot is what put me in the hospital. Uh, I didn't know that they were rioting outside or about to riot the day that I had typed up some papers to carry out to some friends who were working in the program. And when I carried those papers out and left out of the office, they locked the door behind me and I couldn't get back in. When I got out on the yard, I found out that the guys were not only a sit-down strike, it was about to become a riot. Guards were walking around with Louisville Slugger baseball bats and they were lined up in front of the concession stand, lined up in front of the mess hall and nobody could get in. The guys had already set the closed house on fire and had set the chapel on fire. Some guys put the chapel fire out, but the closed house burned. And that morning, about one o'clock, all hell broke loose at Central Prison. Guards on top of the prison began to fire into the crowd. Some people were targeted, and it's pretty obvious that they were targeted because five or six of the leaders of that riot were picked off. One guy from the mountains had a gas canister stuck in his head right above his ear. He had been shot at off the wall. He was just a few feet from me. 
I had been, it was six of us that had sailed across the street from it. And the guards had moved in that night with the dogs and with the weapons and so forth and run us in with the rest of the crowd. And I didn't want to get in with the rest of the crowd. I was afraid uh, of getting hurt. And anyway, when the firing started, they told us to run toward the cell block. And we began running behind the chapel over toward the cell block, and the west gate was there. And when this canister went off into Jerry's head, and he fell, I was close by. And they gave a command, lay down, lay down. They told us to run. I had been running, and I lay down there. And when I lay down, I was hitting the back with a baseball bat. Then they took the foot and turned me over. And they beat me into the face, and these bones were broken at three places in the right side of my face. I ended up in the hospital. Tom and Captain Garrison was looking for me that night, and they found me laying in the corner of the hallway. It was about a hundred and some people waiting out there to be treated. And they found me and carried me to the operating room. And when a guy died in his bed, they moved him out and put me in that bed. And Tom said he didn't think I'd make it through the night. But he said the next morning when he came in, he knew I'd be okay. He saw that little surrender to prayer card up on the windowsill beside of my bed. He knew I had put it there, and apparently I had. I know that I stayed in the hospital about three weeks, and everything was closed down in Central Prison except the guys who were working in the hospital and in the mess hall. And they chose to make me the clerk then or the doctor of the hospital. And that was in June or July of 68. In November of 68, I was in the office working, the doctor's office. And a guard came in and said, go with us, Wallace. And I said, why are we going? He said, we're going to the back hall. I said, why? He said, you'll find out when you get there. I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't sold any information or did any records uh, that would help somebody else. I knew I hadn't done any of that stuff. And when I got to the back hall, I found out that they had clothes there that was honor grade clothes, and I wasn't eligible for honor grade. But Lee V. Bounds, the director of prisons, at Tom's request, had requested that Wallace Bryant be transferred to the honor grade unit to work in that alcoholism drug program as his clerk even though I was still an A-grade prisoner. They had to comply with his order, and I was moved out of Central Prison after that honor grade unit and stayed there for two years working in that program with him. One year after I was moved out there, they promoted me to honor grade. And then I was moved to Sanford when Tom was moved up there as secretary. And when Tom was moved up there as secretary, that's when I went, met Wayland Collins. Tom stayed there for two years running the advancement center. And Wayland had been transferred after two years down to uh, Nash County. And they wanted to give Tom another promotion and send him to Sand Hills to be the warden of three different institutions down there. And Whalen became superintendent after they moved him from Nash County to the Sanford Advancement Center again. Whalen was my superintendent for 10 years. For 10 years he was my superintendent because Tom had been moved. Whalen is in my home group now. <coughs> Guess who his sponsor is? 
never heard of an inmate, ex-inmate, being the sponsor of an ex-superintendent of a correctional facility. <laughs> Only in Alcoholics Anonymous could that happen. Only. I talked with Waylon today. He called again today. And I'm going to start taking him back through the steps again. He requested it, and I'm willing and fully determined that I'll be going to his house once a week, and he'll be coming to my house the next week. I'm going to take him through the steps again, and in doing so, I'm going to be taking me through the steps again. This is a lifelong, ongoing process for me. I haven't given up. This pandemic has not stopped me from being active in AA. Guys from my home group and gals from my home group would come to my house, even though I wasn't allowed to, I wasn't supposed to get into congested areas. The doctor told me not to, not to become exposed. And they'd come to my house and do that Zoom thing. <laughs> and I've had to speak twice on that Zoom thing, once to send a meeting into Oregon and once in Maine. And Zoom is better than nothing, but it's not like a face-to-face meeting where you can hug and shake hands and laugh and talk and socialize and really feed the spirit, feel the spirit of AA. It's a lot of difference, but it's a necessary evil back in those days. I hope we don't have to go back to it. We're back to almost being normal at the group again. In fact, Jerry was up there the other night, did a tremendous job on talking about traditions in family life. We appreciate that, Jerry. I'm grateful to be here tonight. Didn't mean to talk over time, but I hope and pray that God in his infinite mercy will bless every newcomer in the room. And if you haven't found that power that so many of us have found in Alcoholics Anonymous, seek and you shall find. Work and you will prosper. Live the program. Practice the principles. Carry the message to others. Be happy, joyous, free. And you can become an old-timer one of these days. <laughs> but it will be necessary that you do go to meetings, you live the programs, and by all meanings, don't die. Do you won't make it. I love you. <laughs>